Last night in my growth group, three different people shared their experience of being clean after years of addiction. Each of them had been clean of multiple addictions for over 25 years. So it was a fun growth group last night. But I was blessed as each of them described their journey, how that journey started, and how they continued successfully for several decades. Because as they alluded to their journey, each of them mentioned specific sermons that I had preached years ago that God used to open their understanding, nudge their heart, and lead them into the next step of restoration. Now, for obvious reasons, when a pastor hears that, he or she is blessed. (laughs) But it was a reminder to me that whenever we take these guided tours through God's Word together, the goal is not to gain more information. The goal is to experience transformation. God is in the room. God speaks through His Word. God speaks through His called servants. But the goal is Him speaking to you about who you are and where you are and what you're dealing with. And He always has something to say to you. So whenever we take these tours of God's Word together, do more than take notes. Open your heart and say, Lord, what are you saying to me today? What do you have for me today? Some weeks it may not seem like a great deal, and other weeks God is ready to rock your world. But the important thing is to always be ready for Him. Amen? All right, last week we began a study of the Bible's first book, the book of Genesis. And at the outset, I reminded you that Genesis was a sermon before it was a book. And it is more than a scientific rebuttal to those who prefer unbelief. It is a message of hope to those who desire to escape their despair. And today we're going to consider further evidence of that fact. It's embedded in the two opening verses of Genesis. But first let me say this. The redemptive focus of the Bible's opening chapter, its emphasis on restoration, reminds us that God isn't distracted by the clamor, the incessant noise of unbelief. He focuses on those who hunger for faith. And I say that because you don't need me to tell you what we believe is increasingly under attack. Those who believe what we believe are increasingly under attack, and our God is increasingly under attack. And because of that, we may be tempted to feel like we need to counter every attack against God. And while we are to be ready to give a defense of our faith at all times, and while we need to train up our children in God's truth, if we aren't careful in a culture that is increasingly hostile to our faith, we may may try to 
respond to every attack, and then we run the very real risk of spending more time reacting to those who have no desire to believe than we spend acting on behalf of those who are searching for answers and searching for God, even though they may not yet have identified their search. So, in short, what I'm reminding you of is Christ commissioned us to make disciples, not to win arguments. We can be so busy trying to win arguments that we fail to make disciples. Now, with that, let me read Genesis' opening verses. It was good to get that off my heart. (laughs) In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. I'm titling today's study, The God of Restoration. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, I will desperately need the empowering of your spirit to declare your truth and echo your heart. And every one of us will desperately need the enlightenment brought by the Holy Spirit if we're going to understand and if we're going to apply your liberating truth. So again, we pray, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us for this never-to-be-repeated moment. Fall fresh on us. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in me and in us. And we pray that for the welfare of your people, for your glory and your honor, and for the sake of broken people who are looking for answers and looking for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we together listen for God's voice today, may the Lord be with you. Contrary to the accusations of those who don't know him, the heart at the center of the universe isn't detached, insensitive, uncaring, or unaware. Scripture makes it clear God understands our weaknesses. He understands them better than we do. And it makes it clear that He empathizes with us in our struggles. Because God understands it's hard to anticipate a good thing we have never known, especially when all we've ever known is its opposite. You see, it's hard to anticipate dignity when all you've ever known is degradation. It's hard to anticipate hope when all you've ever known is humiliation. It's hard to anticipate justice when all you've ever known is injustice. It's hard to anticipate abundance when all you've ever known is abuse. It's hard to anticipate freedom when all you've ever known is bondage. And that's why the initial recipients of Moses' first recorded sermon struggled to receive that sermon with hope and expectancy. Degradation, humiliation, abuse, 
injustice, bondage. That was all they had ever known. That was their total frame of reference. So the idea that one dude preaching a message of freedom could actually secure that freedom and lead them out of the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, well, to them, that had to sound ludicrous. That had to sound like a cruel joke, especially when everybody knew that the messenger himself had fallen on hard times. He had been raised in power and in privilege, but he had been reduced to the status of a wanted man and a political refugee. Now, after a 40-year exile, he was back with them. They didn't even know if Pharaoh would let him live. And even if Pharaoh let him live, Moses had been absent while they had been suffering. Forty years they had been suffering. Forty years he wasn't suffering. And if you notice, we don't particularly like advice from people who haven't walked in our sandals from people who don't know what we've been going through. And God understood all of that because God knows that wounded people living out of Eden, living in a fallen creation, will struggle to receive his offer of abundant life because it seems too good to be true and because we hate taking risks. And we hate the notion that we, if we step out and trust God, might hear that ugly sound that is made when hope comes crashing down to earth, a sound nobody wants to hear. It's one thing to have your hope postponed. It's another thing to step out and have it pulverized. And nobody wants that. And very few can recover from that. So it should come as no surprise, Moses' audience didn't rush to embrace his message. Oh, this is great news. Everything's going to change. The fact that they were hesitant and pushed back was actually very predictable because we often seek to protect ourselves from the perceived risks of hope by imprisoning ourselves in fear, the fear of disappointment, the fear of failure, the fear of the devastation of hope denied. See, there's a reason why the most frequent, most repeated commandment in Scripture is not love God, is not do justice, is not make disciples. The most frequently repeated command in Scripture is fear not. And that's likely why the description of the final judgment in the Bible's final book opens its listing of those who opted for unbelief by describing them as the fearful. The fear of stepping out in hope only to be disappointed can make cowards of us all. And Moses' beaten down audience was drowning in that fear. And I suspect that's why the Bible's first recorded sermon opens by portraying God's power, God's sovereignty, God's creativity, God's wisdom, God's goodness. 
Remember, God provided Moses with his material. All scripture is God-breathed. And God understands we won't embrace hope until we embrace the thought of an all-powerful God. If there is not an all-powerful God, why embrace hope? We won't take the first steps out of our personal Egypts, our spiritual Egypt, our emotional Egypt, our mental Egypt, our relational Egypt, until we are at least somewhat convinced that hard things aren't impossible for an all-powerful God. So Moses opened his sermon by declaring God's permanence and God's power. And then he quickly shifted his focus to God's performance. And not just any performance, but God's performance in the area of restoration in the aftermath of severe devastation. Let me explain. Moses opened by speaking of God creating. And the Hebrew word he used is very specific. It speaks of calling into existence something that didn't previously exist, something entirely new. Now, the Hebrew language is very precise, and it has a different word for the act of forming something out of pre-existing material, such as sculpting a statue out of a piece of wood or sculpting a statue out of a piece of granite, or forming a piece of pottery out of clay. In each case, you're forming something out of something that already existed. The Hebrews had a word for that. Moses didn't use that word. He used the word that speaks of bringing into existence something that never existed previously. And again, God was giving him his material. And God was telling him, Moses, I didn't use pre-existing matter to fashion the heavens and the earth. I spoke the matter itself into existence. When I want to form something, I create the raw material before I form it. Now, the implications of that reality alone, if you take some time and drill down into them, will inspire a lot of hope. But Moses' countrymen were not in the mood for drilling down into spiritual subtleties. They needed blunt force truth. They didn't have time to think, well, what are the implications of that? They needed two by four to the side of the head truth. So Moses continued. He said, the earth God created was formless and void. He said darkness covered the surface of the deep. He said God's spirit hovered over the waters. Now, the Hebrew words that are translated formless and void would have resonated with Moses' audience because they can also be translated wrecked and ruined, devastated. And that was an accurate description of their situation. They had been wrecked and ruined and devastated. And that word darkness also resonated with their condition because as slaves in Egypt, their circumstances certainly looked bleak and their future looked dark. 
And God's word choice, formless and void, wrecked and ruined, darkness, begs the question, wouldn't a sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God do better work than that? Why would God create an earth covered in darkness when he describes himself as the light of the world, describes himself as being cloaked or wrapped in light, and describes himself as dwelling in inapproachable light? Why would God create a wreck and a ruin, a formless and void creation, when he commands us to do all things in orderly fashion, describes himself as a God of order, and reminds us he is not the author or the originator of confusion? Doesn't make any sense. Given who God is, how do we account for the wreck and the ruin, the chaos and the darkness in verse 2? Well, there are some questions God doesn't answer, but most he does. And you know where he answers the questions Scripture raises? In Scripture itself. That's always where you'll find the best answers. And God's Word offers the best answers to the questions it raises. And in this case, Isaiah offers us valuable assistance. Because in the 45th chapter of his prophecy, the 18th verse, Isaiah declares God did not create the earth formless and void. Bang! No two ways to interpret that. God did not create the earth formless and void because Isaiah said God intended the earth to be inhabited. And that word translated was in the earth was formless and void can also accurately be translated became formless and void. It's the same word that would be used later of Lot's wife who became a pillar of salt. Talk about a high sodium condition. <laughs> Additionally, Scripture teaches us something else. It teaches us that when God is judging evil, He often announces His judgment by unleashing darkness in the created realm. Now, the Egyptians were about to find that out. They worshiped the sun. They saw Pharaoh as the incarnation of the sun. So what was God going to do as he ghetto slapped their idolatry? He was going to bring darkness upon the nation, inexplainable darkness upon Egypt. Why? Because he was announcing his judgment. The plagues were all about God showing up the pretenders and judging an unjust empire. And there are numerous examples of God bringing darkness when he's judging all throughout Scripture, but I think you would agree the ultimate example was Christ hanging on the cross, taking the judgment for our sins upon himself, and God made the created realm dark. So it's quite possible that that darkness mentioned in verse 2 speaks of a prior judgment. See, Scripture tells us in eternity past, long before we got here, Lucifer, whose who Scripture seems to indicate may have been the chief worship leader in the courts of heaven. Lucifer aspired to replace God as the sovereign of the universe. 
We know he was persuasive because he persuaded a third of the hosts of heaven to join him in the rebellion. And in so doing, while the Bible doesn't tell us, it's quite likely that Satan's rebellion introduced the earth to severe chaos and disorder and wreck and ruin. Now, we know that Satan's rebellion was partially judged. The final judgment of that rebellion still lies out ahead of us, and the Bible describes it very carefully. And while Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what transpired, there are some things we don't need to know. It wouldn't be a stretch to assume that when the rebellion went down and wreck and ruin came upon the earth, God signaled his impending or his responsive judgment with darkness. See, darkness is a fitting picture of the disorder and the devastation that is produced when sin poisons God's perfect intent. So Moses' carefully chosen words, brief though they may be, suggest that in 1 and 2 of Genesis, he was describing events that unfolded over a long period of time. He was talking about an original creation that was subsequently devastated and subsequently restored. And all of it executed by the foremost restoration specialist in the universe, the Spirit of the living God. And every detail of that narrative was strategic for Moses' audience because God doesn't waste his time or ours with useless trivia. His references to the past are always meant to prepare us for the future. God wants us to learn from past things. And that certainly was the case for Moses and his enslaved countrymen. Moses' description of the earth's earliest chapters, again, wasn't intended primarily as a rebuttal to evolutionary theories or 21st century skepticism. Because those who embrace those things will never have enough proof because unbelief never has enough proof, because the issue isn't proof, it's the unbelief. If you don't have a mind to believe, well, God can do anything, and it won't change your opinion. I mean, if you doubt that, how many people after Jesus' resurrection still said, no thanks, after his resurrection? when he was seen by over 500 people at once. Unbelief never has enough proof. So these opening lines aren't to convince those who don't want to be convinced. The opening lines were part of a sermon meant to birth hope in a beaten down people. Moses was saying, folks, your lives are much like the earth long ago, a wreck and a ruin, 
covered in darkness, the tragic legacy of sin and rebellion. And like the earth, you weren't created for that. The earth was created to be inhabited, and you were created to be inhabited by the Spirit of God. It's your out-of-Eden reality, but it's not my original intent, and it's time for your out-of-Eden reality to change. What God did long ago in the past, He wants to do again in your immediate future. He wants to initiate a restoration that when He's done, both you and He will say, and it is good. And the fact, folks, that He has done it with the entire creation means it would be nothing for Him to do it with you. This is your opportunity. The same Holy Spirit that hovered over the wreck and the ruin and the darkness is hovering over your wreck and your ruin and your darkness, ready to do an incredible, seemingly impossible restoration. Moses' sermon declared, what God did with the planet, He wants to do with people. What He did with the planet, He wants to do with people. When Moses' countrymen were a wreck and a ruin, God through Moses declared that he hadn't abandoned his creation. He was telling them, you can walk out of your Egypt if you'll put your hand in my hand. Moses' first sermon reminds us, you don't have to turn to the second half of your Bible to read the gospel. The gospel is in the opening chapter of the Bible. When I was in seminary, one of my profs, who was an Old Testament scholar, wrote a commentary on Genesis, and I loved the title, The Gospel According to Moses. Moses got the gospel before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did. Now, they had further details, but Moses had the big picture. Because Genesis' account of creation and restoration offers a beautiful picture of what God desires to do when sin does what it always does. He wants to initiate a restoration. And toward that end, the Holy Spirit still hovers over the surface of hurting souls. I have no doubt The Holy Spirit is hovering over a number of people in this room right now, hovering, wanting to do something, wanting to bring light to your darkness, restoration to your ruin. The Holy Spirit wants to dispel the darkness, the lies that have been heaped upon us by our broken thinking and a world in rebellion and very real determined unseen spiritual forces. He wants to repair the wreck and the ruin. He wants to separate us from the things that would destroy us. He wants to bring life where previously the dust of death was thick. He wants to lead us out of our spiritual Egypt. We tend to fear what we don't understand. Have you noticed that? So even when you hear God's call to restoration. There'll always be the temptation to doubt, to hesitate, to waver, to resist when the Holy Spirit is hovering over you. But in those moments, God says, 
fear not. Look at my track record. I did this with an entire creation. Do you really think I'm going to stub my toe doing it with little old you? Look at my track record. What I start, I finish. And the opening verses of Genesis don't tell us how much time this took because that's not what they're really about. And perhaps that was God reminding us that our recovery doesn't happen overnight. You have to grow in grace. You have to grow in the knowledge of God. You need to experience the continual renewing, I-N-G, of your mind. We enter the kingdom of God with a lot of stinking thinking, a lot of junk in the trunk. And it takes God a long time to sort through all of that and remove the wreck and remove the ruin and remove the darkness. So the transformation doesn't happen overnight, but the decision to say yes to the Holy Spirit, that can happen in a moment. That can happen in a fraction of a second. And until that happens, the process doesn't begin. It can happen in a moment, a moment like this one. If you'll press through your doubts, come face to face with the God of restoration. You know, Scripture makes it clear, two final thoughts. Scripture makes it clear what God did way back when with the creation he's going to do again in the future. Peter tells us that in the New Testament. This earth has been so devastated and defaced by the rebellion of human sin that the day is coming when God says he's literally got to melt the elements with a fervent heat and recast the earth to its original pristine perfection and beauty. And when you read about eternity with God, remember, heaven isn't a cloud up there somewhere. You're not going to spend your eternity sitting on a cloud playing a harp and extolling the virtues of Charmin bathroom tissue. Heaven is here. God's got to restore this planet. He's got to make it a place with no police stations, no graveyards, no prisons, no hospitals, no cemeteries. He's got to give us bodies such as he always intended, perfected, never to know disease, never to know age, never to grow old, never to taste death. Because God doesn't design obsolescence. God designs things that are eternal. So what he did back then, he's going to do again in the future. And Peter says, in light of that, what kind of people should we be? Hopeful, holy, pressing through as God restores us and gets us ready for that new life that awaits us. One final thought. What I said today 
is why I don't care how old the earth is. When it comes to creation, all people have are theories. Because real science can recreate and observe. And nobody's recreating the creation, and nobody was there to observe it. So whatever you believe about creation, you have to take by faith. And the lie that evolutionary theory and science has disproved creation is just that. It's a lie. That's a sad example of science in service to unbelief. Science is good, but it can be prostituted for a lot of things. But when people say, oh, well, the Bible can't be true because we know the, the earth is 687,572,000,000 days and three hours and 57 minutes old, <laughs> never mind that carbon after a point no longer will indicate age, I don't care. I don't care how old it is. God made it, there was a rebellion, there was a wreck, there was a restoration, and God doesn't tell us how long all of that took. But what it tells me is my dad made it, and he restored it, and he's got to have the final word about it, and the world is not going to end because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So, when somebody, well, your, your Bible isn't true because we now know, yeah, knock yourself out. <laughs> the Bible allows, I believe, for a very, very old earth. But more importantly, it allows for your restoration. And if all you do is debate rocks and you miss the rock of ages, then you have missed the point entirely. So, let's close in prayer. And if God hovering over you has spoken to you today, respond to him. If you're a believer and he's hovered over you about a sin that has just dogged your steps too long, respond to him. If you came having never reached out to Jesus to be your Lord, Savior, and Restorer, and God's Spirit is hovering over you, and you sense Him nudging and inviting, then respond. Just simply say, Lord, save me, I believe. That's all you really need to do. Because Jesus said, I'm knocking, open the door, I'll come in. How simple is that? But if you heard from the hovering Spirit today, be assured He speaks to restore. He wants to restore something in you. And to get what Moses was driving at, you'll need to say, yes, Lord. Yes, do it in me. Father, we thank you that Scripture opens with a profound message of hope and closes with an invitation. Help us to hear the first and respond to the second in Jesus' name. Amen.